0: heard of the Bloomsbury set? I must confess I was on the periphery. I'd heard of them, but I couldn't reconcile the context. So who were they and why were they important? They were in fact a very important group of influences of their time, an influence that has surprisingly continued to this very day, all through a loose collective of friends united by an abiding belief in the importance of the arts. They became known as the Bloomsbury set. It's this link with a belief in art and handcrafts, including embroidery, being such an important part of life that they promoted. So why should this particular group of writers, intellectuals, philosophers and artists of the early 20th century Believe they could influence others through their literature, aesthetics, criticism and economics, not to mention their modern attitudes towards feminism, pacifism and sexuality. We are talking about the likes of Virginia Woolf, Leonard Woolf, John Maynard Keynes, Roger Fry, E.M. Forster, Duncan Grant, Clive Bell, Vanessa Bell and Leighton Strachey. But there were many, many more. Convoluted relationships and myriad affairs were part of their get the maximum of pleasure out of their personal relations credo. They lived in squares, painted in circles and loved in triangles according to Dorothy Parker who knew them at the time. Formed around something called the Friday Club in 1905, they began meeting in earnest by 1912 through to the 1920s and 30s, where the group shifted as the second generation following reached adulthood. Well-educated and from upper-middle-class professional families, they were part of an intellectual aristocracy that supported and promoted each other's work and careers. And what's historically interesting is that these close relationships predated their fame as writers, artists and thinkers. This was at a time when they were the unknowns. They created a protective environment where experimental ideas and identities were tested and explored before presenting them to the public. It was their way of fostering innovative thinking. So fellow stitch safari travellers, join me as I dig and delve into this exquisitely civilised and simply too extraordinary, apparently two of their favourite catchphrases, group of people with a focus on their design aesthetic that has continued to this very day. And one I have to say I find utterly inspiring. This is a fantastic tale, so let's get started. Hello, and welcome to the Stitch Safari Podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing, ambrosial world of stitch history, art, and embroidery. Each fortnight, we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. My name's Cathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. Why are the Bloomsbury set so captivating still. I confess to an overabiding interest in the Bloomsbury set, yet I really can't explain why, and I'm not alone in this. Kim Jones, Dior's artistic director, sent out models at the 2023 Men's Spring Show wearing sweaters printed with post-impressionist works by early 20th century painter Duncan Grant, a member of the Bloomsbury Group. Jones as a teenager lived not far from the 16th century farmhouse Charleston endlessly mythologized by the Bloomsburyans as they were called a place he used to spend time sketching but this wasn't his first homage to the Bloomsbury set According to a 2023 blog post by Kin Woo entitled Why Fashion Can't Get Enough of the Bloomsbury Group, His spring 2021 house couture debut for Fendi featured hand embroidery with organza flowers and crystal beads, inspired by Virginia Woolf's 1928 novel Orlando, a gender transgressive love story recently adapted onto the stage on London's West End. Kin Woo states that The circle of artists, writers and intellectuals, which formed in the first half of the 20th century, continues to captivate designers, and apparently continues to offer new inspiration. There's even an online art and design course called The Bloomsbury Group, offered by City Lit, covering the key figures and some of their works, the Omega Workshops, Bloomsbury social networks and their influence on the British art world in the early 20th century. Stephen Stokey Daly founder of the sustainable menswear line SS Daly, offering his own queer take on elite British dress codes, finds the Bloomsbury set so exciting to unpick and explore. As a visual person who enjoys the romanticism of literature, he says his 2020 graduate collection alluded to E.M. Forster's gay coming-of-age novel Maurice, published in 1971. Forster would have loved Stephen's take on British dress codes, which Forster found too fastidious. Jones, Stokey Daly and Com de Garçons, Ray Caracubo, along with other designers, will be contributing pieces to an exhibition at the Charleston Farmhouse titled Bring No Clothes, Bloomsbury and Fashion so named because apparently Virginia Woolf wrote to to T.S. Eliot prior to his visit in 1920, noting to bring no clothes. We live in a state of greatest simplicity. And that was the true spirit of the Bloomsbury set. Yes, there was a Bloomsbury look, but it was about simplicity and freedom. The Bloomsbury set exerted an influence that helped contribute to the development of modern art in Britain, one that continues today. Yet was the group actually that influential at the time? Other than within their own set, I don't believe so. So why are they still being written about today? The website Mad About the House features a blog post from 2022 where Kate Watson-Smith writes about 10 things you need to know about Bloomsbury style. Kate asserts the Bloomsbury style has been creeping back into popularity of late with people uh, updating their decor by adding patterns and flowers to painted furniture to achieve that famous Bloomsbury look. It's about upcycling, decorating and transforming walls, furniture and even lampshades with geometric and nature-inspired images and shape. And its beauty is that it's not about perfection. Hotelier Kit Kemp's Charlotte Street Hotel has rooms dedicated to two Bloomsburyans, Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant. He acknowledges an influence by the group who believed that art should be democratic and that furniture, ceramics, and textiles should be given as much attention as fine art. That's why they filled their home with beautiful things and painted every surface. They loved color from dusky blues, warm yellows, artichoke greens damask rose, turquoises, burnt oranges and aubergine, a beautiful colour palette that can be both moody yet uplifting. This was their reaction to the drab post-war Edwardian interiors predating their style. Their look veers towards maximalism, a homely, comforting mix of recycling, overpainting and the covering of almost every surface with a hit of colour and pattern that can be both stylish and elegant or kitsch and quaint. Heal's department store held regular exhibitions of their painted ceramics with no surface safe from paintbrushes. Perfect for DIY because that was the point, their naive freehand style. And while the colours are rich and warm, it's also a juxtaposition of neoclassical and cubist, of arts and crafts and Italian fresco, creating something quite joyful and magical. Design straight from the heart. A refreshing contrast to the dark, pre-war Edwardian style. But to get back to the Bloomsbury group themselves... Joseph McBrinn, author and lecturer, writing a chapter for the book titled Stitching the Self, Identity and the Needle Arts, written by Joanna Amos and Lisa Binkley, published by Bloomsbury Visual Arts in 2019, states this. The women of the Bloomsbury group were unconventional, progressive and pioneers of cultural and intellectual modernism. Yet their complex feelings about needlework give some insight into how they navigated contemporary mores concerning gender identity and sexuality. Remember, this was a time when the feminine ideal was to embrace the pervasive pastime of embroidery as a source of pleasure, relaxation and escapism. But also deeply lodged therein were the negative stereotypes of popular hobbyism, sanctimonious church needlework groups and guilds, along with a cult of curative goodwill societies – all of which defined women as domesticated, subservient, and passive. The uh, Bloomsbury women rejected that tenacious feminine ideal of embroidery from previous generations, yet the connection between femininity and domestic textile work still held strong. They continued to embroider and sew but they did it their way. Virginia Woolf, although strictly not an avid embroiderer, features needlework as a recurring motive in one of her novels and uses textiles as a metaphor in many of her other works. Prescribed to do fancy work by her doctor as part of a rest cure, Woolf later says that, I try to paint an embroider, but these arts are so vapid after writing. But the principal embroiderer of the group was Ethel Grant, who appears to have led them towards creating needlework professionally. The Amiga Workshops, a craft utopia, was set up by artist and writer Roger Fry, and uh, along with other members of the Bloomsbury Group in 1913 in Bloomsbury, central London, selling furniture, fabrics and household accessories. The premises also included studios where items were designed and made, as well as public showrooms for customers to browse. It became a public platform for the group, its aesthetic, ideals and beliefs. The directors were Fry, Duncan Grant and Vanessa Bell. Their aim was to remove what they saw as the false division between fine and decorative arts. And how often during my research have I encountered that ideal? They were keen to see modern art, including bright, bold colours and simplified forms used in design. It was to provide a graphic expression of the essence of the Bloomsbury ethos. But it was also an opportunity to help their artist friends, a Bloomsbury philosophy, providing them with a chance to design, decorate and sell furniture, textiles and household items to enhance their careers as artists. The Amiga workshops were invited to show at the Ideal Home exhibition in 1913, designing a sitting room inspired by the movement of dance. Hand-dyed cushions, printed curtains, upholstery and murals all featured the dance-inspired theme. Amiga's products were influenced by the simplified forms of post-impressionist, cubist and fauvist artworks, with artist and director Vanessa Bell using Amiga fabrics in dressmaking, something that apparently became a lucrative and popular sideline to the business. Fry was inspired by William Morris and John Ruskin, but Fry's motivations were vastly different from those of Morris. His were purely aesthetic and cultural, reimagining that it was time that the spirit of fun was introduced to furniture and fabrics. Amiga also branched out into theater design in 1918 and were in talks with the Russian ballet founder Serge Diaghilev about a commission for stage designs and costumes for a new ballet. Its continuing existence, though, relied heavily on support from London's wealthy artistic and literary circles, including people such as playwright George Bernard Shaw. But Omega struggled to survive and eventually closed in 1919. Fry wrote this The utter indifference of the public to what we have attempted has brought Omega to disaster. Yet, 25 years later, a screen painted by Roger Fry was mentioned in Evelyn Waugh's work Bride's Head Revisited, recognising that Amiga workshops played an important role in the development of interior design between 1910 and 1920, work that heavily featured embroidery and the needle arts. In 2019, Nancy Hass, in a post uh, for the New York Times Style magazine, wrote this. Today, several designers and artisans are finding new relevance in Amiga's raw energy, combining the cerebral and the instinctual in its fiery colorways and patterns. The Amiga workshops blurred the boundaries between visual and decorative art. Now it's become totemic for a cadre of contemporary designers, she writes. Has quotes fashion designer Jonathan Anderson, working for the Spanish brand Lowe. Amiga was so inspiring because it was really the first time in Britain that there was this collective energy about art informing the domestic space. Hass also notes that a century later, a Brooklyn design collective called Fort Makers shares Amiga's creative core, creating products including quilts and cushions reminiscent of that wildness and spontaneity that so fascinated the Bloomsbury group. Now, the Bloomsbury Group also included a number of writers. And in 1917, Leonard Wolfe and Virginia Wolfe began hand printing books as a hobby during the interwar period, publishing many works by members of the Bloomsbury Group, becoming known as Hogarth Press. This has gone on to become an imprint of the huge conglomerate publishing company Penguin Random house. Joseph McBryn writes that the men as much as the women of Bloomsbury grew increasingly committed to needlework in a period that saw it transformed from a woolly vestige of Victorian drawing rooms to a fashionable vehicle for modern art. McBryn also writes this, In the wider Bloomsbury history, the complex significance of textiles in general, and needlework in particular, has been much overlooked. The needlework that Fry, Bell and Grant designed and exhibited during the interwar years, which was generally made by professional embroiderers such as the artist Mary Hogarth or Mary Simons, editor of the popular Needlecrafts magazine, hardly differed in aesthetics or artistry from the homely therapeutic stitching of Wolf, that of the Belgian refugees or even of the disabled soldiers' embroidery industry. And the link to embroidery stretches to Bloomsbury's earliest moments where in 1913 Fry organised an exhibition of work under the Grafton Group title featuring fire screens, bed screens, wall work chair covers and table covers worked in colourful, modernist designs. The Paul Moore Gazette critic of the time, however, was less than enthusiastic. Again, according to mcbrin Fry also held an exhibition for the Amiga opening, where he spoke to a journalist about the significance of the workshops. Post-impressionist Berlin Woolwork, it seems quite a mid-Victorian idea, but as it is not treated in a mid-Victorian manner. He says, the designs are full of colour and rhythm, as the others were full of dullness and stiffness. I like Berlin war work, he goes on to say, it is durable and strong and it is a particularly good medium for us. Yet it's strange that Fry uses the term Victorian or Victoriana, the perfect epitome or of bourgeoisie bad taste, where it's so bad it's good. But it should also be looked at in the context of the emerging camp culture around World War One, where high art, pop culture, painting and embroidery became conflated. This was a period of an emerging homosexual subculture and the Bloomsbury set played an important role in gendered, stitched textiles. Duncan Grant and Vanessa Bell continued uh, to collaborate after Amiga closed and Bloomsburyans continued to exhibit needlework well into the mid-1930s this homosocial group through the unexpected avenue of needlework were subverting the highly feminized Victorian forms of cross-stitch and Berlin woolwork as a means of playing with the new cultural formations of effeminacy and camp. So for the women, needlework offered a means to contest the previous feminine ideal as they now had access to a world of masculine ideas ambition and entitlement adapting these roles to suit themselves both retaining and subverting normative family values and for the men it essentially formed a critique of heteronormative masculinity This avant-garde group of artists and writers was simply trying to create new meanings from old forms. And they did it for pleasure and amusement. They created something called the Amusing Style, lifting darkness in the aftermath of the First World War as well as reviving Victorian needlework aesthetics and techniques. But again, they did it their way. The complex shifting dynamics of the Bloomsbury set allowed their incursions into modernism and enabled them to step away from normative conventions to innovate, but also cement a sense of their own separate values and identity. The 60-year longevity of the Bloomsbury set can be seen in their sense of Belonging, something psychologists see as fundamental to human happiness. It was a uniquely successful and productive combination, providing both physical and emotional support through times of crisis. The Bloomsbury identity is well documented and an ongoing inspiration to new generations of artists, writers, and thinkers. For embroiderers and those interested in uh, the history of the needle arts, the Bloomsbury set and the Bloomsbury style, in my opinion, is a very interesting and vibrant period to research a self-fashioned, designed aesthetic. It's playful and unique and positively beautiful. As always, Thank you so much for your time. I love having you here and it's truly appreciated. Tell your friends to tune in and subscribe and let's make 2023 the best year ever. Stitch Safari has now reached over 12,000 downloads and that's all thanks to you. And I'm extremely grateful. It's also been mentioned as one of the 20 best embroidery podcasts of 2021 by Whelp magazine, listed as one of the top shows about embroidery by Repod in 2022 and recorded in the top five textile industry podcasts you must follow in 2023 by Feedspot. Please leave a message and subscribe to the Stitch Safari podcast. There's just so much more to discover and it's also fascinating i do post interesting tidbits on instagram and facebook from time to time as well as book reviews and (coughs) and a blog on the stitch safari website so do head on over till the next exciting episode of stitch safari and our next inspiring adventure into stitch embroidery and design bye for now